Hey, it's Greg Brady. How's everybody doing? Thanks for checking out Toronto Today. On the last day of November, the 30th of November, our Tuesday show, we talk about the kind of give and take right now of the COVID focus. I'm looking at other stuff. When we talk about COVID, it's not necessarily COVID. It's about the things we want to get back in a endemic world. And I think that's where we're at right now. Of course, we have to watch this variant carefully. Of course, we have to rely on expert opinion, much of which has calmed us down the last two or three days compared to, uh, you know, lighting the flames of fear in Assyria on Friday. So we talk a little bit about that. Anthony Fury is on the show from the Toronto Sun. Dr. Suman Chakrabarty as well gives us a straight good on where we're going. A really insightful, important chat and uh, so much more. So enjoy the Toronto Today podcast. It begins now. So let's go to uh, one of the experts, one of the guys we trust the most. He is Dr. Suman Chakrabarty uh, with the Trillium Health Networks. Hey, uh, I didn't think Dr. Chakrabarty Friday was a uh, great day. Uh, we got nervous. We got worried. That was inflamed somewhat. Uh, I think the waters have calmed somewhat now. But when we go back to three or four days ago, it didn't, it didn't leave us feel. It left us with a bit of a pit in our stomach. It wasn't a good day. No, it really didn't. And I think that one of the things that I've noticed in my kind of just survey of the comments people make, uh, whether it's social media or people talking to me, that type of thing is people are worried that we've made progress to a point and then something's going to happen to pull the rug out for us, uh, out from under us at the the last moment and and bring us back to square one. I hear that a lot. uh, You know, we're going to go back to square one. I think that's very unlikely. I think that uh, we are in a situation, for example, in Canada, where we have something like 85, 86% of eligible people vaccinated on the ground. In that situation, we have to remember that immunity is not like a light switch. It doesn't turn off and on. It can dim. But the thing is, for something like Omicron, even if it is more uh, transmissible than than Delta, you're not going to see it rip through a population uh, that's uh, as highly vaccinated as us and and cause severe disease. Uh, I'm very highly skeptical of that. But that said, I think that's important for us to gather the information, look at this with a level head and realize this is not March 2020. We know a lot more about this virus than we did a, a year and a half ago. Yeah, we're, we're, we're simply not going back there, um, you know, c- come hell or high water, because we won't have to. Dr. Suman Chakrabarty is our guest on Toronto Today on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Um, let's go to the travel restrictions. Some countries laid some things down in the afternoon on Friday. And, you know, it, it the, the idea of closing borders and the idea of limiting access to travel made some sense when we go back to the exact era we're talking about in March and April and May of 2020. And uh, and even maybe maybe made sense to have limitations on who could cross the land border, you know, fall of 2020 leading up to this past spring. Um, now it doesn't. And now it doesn't when it comes to, again, not knowing whether this variant's a more dangerous variant or not. Um, it just felt like a domino, a domino uh, effect of, of overreaction by certain nations, Canada included. I completely agree with you. And I think that uh, many of us, we, we were discussing this uh, uh, in the uh, in the field where when you hear something that was uh, reported by, in this case, South Africa, their first thought was, oh, this is everywhere. This is not just in South Africa. You just wait. Uh, and then it was really, really dismaying to see um, many nations kind of, like you mentioned, dominoes uh, falling over and doing their, their restrictions right off the bat. And then slowly 
or I guess quickly, you started finding out there's cases in Israel, there's cases in Belgium, there's cases in Hong Kong, and now, of course, Canada. And this kind of looks silly now. And I think the, the thing that bothers me is that why wasn't this thought of at the moment that this news came out? And I think I'll put up one other big thing is that, look, we have a situation where uh, we haven't been very equitable with vaccines in the developing world. Not that South Africa is developing, but that area of the world has low vaccination rate. They now do amazing work. They find a variant and we reward them with restrictions. And I think that's very, very, uh, it's a bad road to go down, especially in the future. If another developing nation uh, finds, for example, a, a, a variant, are they going to be transparent with it? And we have to tread carefully. Yeah. Who, who's what, what country is coming forward um, to be judged and punished, uh, especially if their population isn't highly vaccinated? I think we went through this with essential workers, to be honest, in March and April, people trying to quote unquote play hurt saying, I, I, I don't get paid to stay home. I've got to show up. The boss is going to dock me pay if I'm not there. So if I've got a cough or I've got a cold or I'm feeling like hell, I'm going in anyway. And guess what? COVID got spread in those workplaces because those workers, again, it's it's an element of personal responsibility. Sure it is, but but we're not in their shoes, you know, potentially losing 14 days pay. I'm not, you're not, many of our listeners on. We can't, we can't put ourselves in those shoes and say we would have done any differently. I completely agree with you. And I think that that's a part of the issue with the, the, the pandemic response is that uh, a lot of kind of not realizing what's happening in the broader context of things. And I think, um, you know, um, I, I get it. I understand the, uh, the fear of a contagion. Uh, we've been living with that for the past two and a half years sorry, one and a half to two years. Uh, and uh, it makes a lot of hasty decisions uh, for uh, self-preservation. It's a very, very human characteristic. But look, I, you know, we're a year and a half, almost two years into this, uh, coming up to December. And I really think that we have to learn from what we did before. We saw multiple times that these travel restrictions didn't work. And what we need to do is what I, I will say to give credit is what we are doing on the ground is getting people vaccinated. Uh, but we have to do a better job of getting vaccines into parts of the world like Africa, South South America, and certain parts of Asia as well, because until we quell this uh, pandemic in other places, it's not going to be over for the, the entire world. Dr. Suman Chakrabarty is our guest on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Now, hesitancy has been a big issue even in Canada. It's been a bigger issue in the United States. It is an issue in Africa. There is access. There's access issues. Of course there are. And there sure were at the beginning of the pandemic when uh, we weren't doing a very good job of of sharing and, and even sending them cheaper, you know, the COVAX stuff, the Johnson and Johnson stuff, the stuff that, that wasn't sort of the gold standard with the mRNA vaccine. So in, in your, you know, in, in your heart of hearts, how do we how do we convince um, people in African nations, Asian nations with really low uptake? Even if the vaccines are staring them right in the face, how do we convince them uh, to trust us that we're bringing you something that can that can help you move through this? There is that level of distrust there. There is. And, and you know, I won't uh, pretend to have the answers because this is a very, very uh, complex interplay of different factors. Uh, you know, w- one of the issues is that you can even have people that want the vaccine. You have the vaccine, but, you know, you don't have the funds to be able to make the infrastructure uh, to be able to deliver it properly. We do know that the especially with Pfizer, we have refrigeration um, requirements, which aren't always available, uh, depending on where you go. Either way, it's a very difficult situation, uh, but uh, that doesn't mean that it, it can't be done. Uh, I think that uh, public health campaigns have always specialized in being creative in these situations, and I uh, don't doubt that it can't be done in uh, that it can be done. Sorry, in uh, in South Africa and other areas of Africa itself, they've had some pretty impressive vaccination campaigns over the years. Uh, we just really have to think of this as a global picture, and rather than you know sitting here getting our third and fourth doses, 
you know, getting other people their first doses, I think, has much more of a high yield in terms of uh, efficacy. I'm glad you brought that up about infrastructure. I think it's important for our listeners to understand. I read a book, uh, a post, uh, the big Live Aid concert in the 80s, right? And uh, and they raised so much money from that and the records that we are the world and do they know it's Christmas. What they struggled with um, for this great humanitarian disaster in Ethiopia was, was just finding a way to get the food there, finding a way to make sure that it got to the people it got to, that it didn't spoil along the way. Uh, and that it, it just every every box had to be checked. And I don't doubt the vaccines. I mean, we were worried about, about you know, uh, special refrigerators and how it would be stored for ourselves in a in a pretty rich country. We were worried about that a year ago. So imagine it in in in, in poor African nations. It's it's a it's a very good point. I think that one thing that uh, if there's a theme in this entire pandemic is realize things are complicated. You know, um, maybe at the very beginning, making that decision of locking down, for example. At the time, March, maybe it made sense, right? Uh, uh, but now, like, you know, we saw the effects. We saw the, the complex interplay of socioeconomics, uh, health, um, uh, other types of risk factors. These things all have to be made into the decision. And it can't just be about looking at numbers. And when the numbers go up, you uh, you restrict. Or if you see a variant, you close uh, travel. It doesn't work, work that easily. And we really have to start looking at this as more of a, a broad thing and remember the un, uh, unintended consequences. Do you feel that in your in your community, on your street, that people are, um, you know, they're wary of this, they're vigilant of this? Of course, they're, you know, they're watching the news, they're reading the news, hopefully as best they can. Anyone who's reading, who's listening to us already is trying to get ahead of the game uh, from the average person. That said, there's just there's bridges we we won't go back to. We can be vigilant about COVID, but the idea of of a school closure, the idea of of coming back to work, doing something that's really important and and then getting sent home again. It's just I, I don't know a parent that will tolerate uh, a long term, you know, pivot to go back to to online, you know, virtual schooling again. I don't know one that will say that won't say I'd rather take my chances unless unless. Um, the circumstances are are grave with a new variant. If they're like Delta, they're willing to take their chances. I completely agree. And this is actually something that I've been having a struggle internally with myself is that, look, I think as doctors, obviously, uh, we know things like infectious diseases, public health. And back in the beginning, when we didn't know a lot about the virus, uh, you know, our, uh, our, our contribution to big policy decisions made a lot of sense. Now we're getting to a part where, of course, the science is still important. I'm not denying that, but mm-hmm. things like uh, even restrictions, even restrictions light, a capacity restriction, that can have a really long lasting, severe effect on certain businesses that might put them under. And these are the type of, of consequences we don't think of in the, in the health profession. And I think we really need to start realizing that there's a lot of hurt that's happened economically, which of course is tied in with health uh, to, you know, to our populace in the last uh, two and a half years, uh, sorry, I keep saying two and a half one and a half to two years. It just and, feels uh, that way. Yeah, it does feel that way. <laughs> and I, I just, we really need to be wary of the unintended consequences of that call, for example, for restrictions, because we might not serve many businesses, many people might not survive another one. Well, I think you, you spoke up in the last month. I think Dr. Uh, Dr. Zane Chaglet did as well. There's a few epidemiologists, infectious disease specialists. There's there's a few people, I suppose, like me on the radio saying and trying to let people know that it's not the big cities that are the problem right now. It's not Toronto and it's not Ottawa. It's not Hamilton. It's not Peel. There's a lot of little unvaccinated centers where, where maybe the passports don't factor. And I've thought about that. Think about how often you have to use a vaccine passport and I have to use it to go here, there and everywhere to prove I'm fully vaccinated. The smaller a place, the more rural place you go, smaller place you go. 
you don't need it as much. And you assume you don't see that many people, but then you forget that you go to your kid's hockey game and you forget that you went out for dinner and you forget this and you forget that. And it can add up to more cases. Clearly, the numbers have, have shown that the last month or so. Yeah, I mean, you, you and I were talking about before Peel. Peel obviously mm-hmm. was one of the hardest hit regions in all of Canada, and it's at the bottom right now. I think a lot of this has to do with accrued vaccine mediated immunity for sure, but also a large amount of post infectious immunity. Because mm-hmm. the, the, I think what I've noticed here, you're seeing a lot of places that were not affected by COVID before that are starting to have a lot of cases, and what predicts. Right now, what's predicting places that are doing better is if your unvaccinated cohort also had a risk of being previously exposed to COVID. So they have immunity that way. Remember, in this pandemic, there's only one way out of this. It's immunity. And that's immunity either from vaccination or if uh, you've been exposed to the virus, which I don't recommend doing. Uh, But it's important. And that's what we're going to see, I suspect, all winter. These smaller centers around Canada having their delta waves uh, or maybe Omicron. We'll we'll see what happens. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then things, uh, uh, you know, whiplashing and getting back to uh, a baseline. Well, you're you're either figuring out the easy way or the hard way. You're not eluding this. You're not able to elude this and dodge it for 23 straight months without either 24, 25, however long we're at without either a vaccine or without getting it. And, And it could flatten you if it gets it. So it's one or the other. Like, take your pick, right? Absolutely. And I'll say one thing that we also have to kind of think something. One of my colleagues, Dr. Kira Manteng, he's a ICU doctor in Ottawa. He mentioned something to me. We were talking about a, a story of 2018 and he remembers getting a flu and being on, on, on his back for a couple of days and then he got better. And it made me think, I realized that happened before people got sick. They were really sick for a couple of days and they got better and went back to work. And that's kind of where we are at right now with COVID. If you're vaccinated that yes, you can get COVID, get sick, be on your back for a couple of days and then get better and not be hospitalized. And we have to start to realize that that happened before COVID. It's normal. It happened to many people, it happened to all of us at least once. But the point is, is that with the vaccine protection, you're not going to be hospitalized. Dr. Suman Chakrabarty, thanks for the time. Thanks for shooting so straight with uh, with our audience as always. Really appreciate you coming on the show. My pleasure. Take care. People are upset as they're back into the idea of masks on public transit. I think we should wear masks on public transit for the time being. There will be an off-ramp at a certain point in time. Again, the city wants to get to 90%, 90%, 90%. I get that. They need to tell us what happens when we get to 90%. I'm going to, next time we have Joe Cressy on, he's getting that question. We were talking about the vaccine clinic. That's great. You're give parent, you're giving parents options. That's fantastic. We don't hear as much anymore from Ontario Liberal leader, Stephen Del Duca. I'm happy to put him on and, and see if he still feels it as adamant about there needing to be a mandate for five to 11 year olds. Um, but we don't hear that from John Tory and Eileen Davila anymore. It's weird. I think they probably found there was very little political capital to be made by that. And let's be perfectly fair about masks. Again, I'll wear it until until you tell me not to. I don't think they're terribly effective right now at providing any benefit, any benefit in a non-crowded area for a fully vaccinated asymptomatic person. I don't think that they are. And many of the people I said this yesterday and people were like, yeah, people screaming loudest about uh, restrictions potent or being fearful of this Omicron variant are the ones that think masks work the best. What are you worried about Omicron for? You have a mask. You're fully vaccinated. 
<laughs> Honestly, like th- th- I need you to think and realize the hypocrisy of that right now. So it's a little bit of to me right now masks, especially on little kids. It's kind of that political get out of jail free card. OK, um, I don't know that there's um, a significant difference and we're seeing it in the United States. I know you I'm not going to defend the behavior and the policy pre-vaccination of some of the southern states. I don't think it is defensible. What I will tell you is, is that my nephews in upstate New York, compared to my two kids in in, uh, in Toronto, my nephews have lived a hell of a lot more in the last 12 months than my two kids have. And that burns me a little bit. And I'm New York is not some, you know, Wild West, uh, you know, OK Corral shootout where it's like, hey, let's just it's a pretty liberal state. OK, and they live in a very liberal county and liberal city. But they're a lot. They were a lot more open and a lot longer than we have been in terms of what they've been able to do. We've all got to mitigate our own risks here. I don't know what else to say about it. Uh, Anthony Fury joins us right now from the Toronto Sun, a new column in the Toronto Sun. And and you're you're helpful because to your readers, if they forgot who Pavlov and his dog were in high school, now you're reminding them. What, what a great public service to remind people that there was a Pavlov and he had a dog. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Greg. <laughs> a real Pavlovian response I'm finding these days where we're told... Okay, cases are going up or the news tells us there's a new variant and there's many things we don't know about the new variant. Is it it even actually worse? Is it more severe? Uh, Does it evade vaccines? Nobody has a definitive answer. Dr. Kieran Moore yesterday actually making clear that, yeah, they're not leaning either way. It could be a less lethal virus. And yet we see this stuff in the news and the Pavlovian response is we must call for the government to do more, whatever that means, to uh, bring in border restrictions. Or I've heard some people asking questions at that press conference of, oh, I assume this means there'll be more restrictions in Ontario in the weeks ahead. Whoa, hold on a second. Where does that come from? And where does that sort of natural Pavlovian response come from? How has that been so internalized? Uh, for us, that we see these uh, see this news, and we just assume it's going to be normal uh, to have our society shut down again a few weeks later. It's, it's kind of troubling that uh, that we've really internalized that attitude, Greg. I feel like uh, there will be enough of a of a pushback that 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 feels impossible to me. Yet when I watched in the spring, as you and I talked about a bunch of times, them close down just when the weather got nice, golf courses, pickleball, tennis, th- right. then I couldn't rule anything out. And, th- and that was provincial as opposed to federal. But I, I do think there's, I'm glad so far we haven't followed the insanity of Switzerland, Israel. Um, they're, they're talking about this in the UK. Are we going to test and quarantine every single international traveler? And for people who work in the travel industry or any sort of tourism industry, they're panicked that that happens. And I brought this up earlier, Anthony, that this will become a self-fulfilling prophecy. prophecy. Travel will drop, but it won't be because you and I are afraid of Omicron. It's just you've just made this 10 times the pain in the ass that we hoped it would be over the next six months. So we're not going anywhere. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, one of the reasons why uh, I've heard from people who say they wanted to get their kids vaccinated early was because uh, they were hoping the rules would change, that there wouldn't be quarantine. They want to go to Florida this winter and they don't want the kids to have to stay cooped up in the house for 14 days because right now uh, you don't have to do that if you're vaccinated. Uh, but they wonder, you know, are there going to be different rules for, for unvaccinated kids? So I think you're, you're, you're totally right that a lot of life plans are being made, uh, not so much around personal concerns around COVID, but 
trying to navigate these actual rules. And, you know, you're making the point earlier, Greg, about uh, less sort of pushing towards these things like mandatory vaccines for kids, Stephen Del Duca dropping that. Yesterday during the press conference, Dr. Kieran Moore reported that 6.4% of 5 to 11-year-olds had been vaccinated. And he sort of said that statement as if, okay, like we're happy with that. And anyway, let's move on to the next topic. He didn't go on some lecture about how, okay, and we got to get more and so forth. So perhaps they are reading the room and they just see, yes, you know, parents are registering their kids and they're slowly showing up for it. It's not like that deluge we saw uh, when vaccinations were open for people in their 60s and 50s and 40s. It's a different ballgame and, and we're just happy to uh, to let this roll out however the public would like it to. And am I wrong? Do you think you've got kids in that uh, in that window? So you've got a lot. You, you see a lot more probably of a peer group than I do now with teenagers who've been vaccinated since the summer. It, it just would have been the holy war of all holy wars for education, uh, forcing parents of a completely healthy six year old to get the shot to keep attending grade one. You, you we, we haven't seen the vitriol and the anger and, and placards and protests in the states like we've seen in the states. I think I think we were we would have come towards that had we forced this. Yeah, I've certainly received a lot of emails from parents who say that they were first in line to get vaccinated or they were happy to do it for themselves. They're just not sure what, what the rush is for their kids. They, they either say they're waiting for a bit, as poll numbers show, or they say they will get their kids vaccinated, but they're just not as concerned about doing all this societal upheaval as we did for the adult vaccines. Uh, definitely a lot of parents who are fine to get vaccinated, just having different views uh, with the kids. So I, I think you're certainly right that the, it's a different category. With Anthony Fury, our guest from the Toronto Sun. Um, look, we've all been right about some things. We've all been wrong about some things about COVID. It's been 22, 23 months. Nobody's, nobody's riding some giant unbeaten streak. But I'd ask you what your thought process was. You laid a little bit of it out in the story. But how did it make you feel, maybe not even as a, as a parent or a father or a, or a man, but as a, as a journalist on Friday? We had a lot of a lot of media going in a lot of different directions and even the experts saying, wait, 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 we don't know about this. We're not sure this is we're not sure we got to see some data here. And and I, I just think we we ran with fear and panic on a Friday afternoon just because we did. Yeah, I found it rather scary. Some people found it scary because they thought, oh, no, there's a new variant. It's going to come here. It's deadlier. My vaccines don't work. Other people found it scary. And I'm in this category that we did just see this manic push to, oh, no, there's a crazy new variant shut things down. Doug Ford uh, calling on Justin Trudeau to do it, Aaron O'Toole joining him, others saying we got to close the borders, at least to these seven countries. And it was like dropping like dominoes. You heard a new country doing this and that. Now we see Hong Kong getting uh, us in the mix. They're now banning arrivals from Canada into Hong Kong because we have a few cases of this Omicron. And then we've had all sorts of uh, medical voices, people appearing on television and radio saying, hold on a second. We got some unanswered questions here. And I, I just think, Greg, it felt like March 2020 all over again. And yet we have learned so much since March 2020, the things that work, the things that we did that perhaps did not work. And I go, can we just pause and, and calm down here? Because my understanding is that the virus is not disappearing uh, anytime soon throughout my natural life. And there's going to be variants pretty much every year. So do, do we shut things down on a yearly basis? Let's just get more information before we act here. I think the trap a little bit, to be honest, is is we and I'm I'm sure I've been guilty of it. I think we have placed politicians and maybe, yeah, maybe public health officials into a scenario where they must recommend something for everyone. Right. I watched uh, Katie Simpson, who's a phenomenal journalist, but I watched her interview Carolyn Bennett, the MP on Friday night. And Carolyn Bennett said, I'm I've, I've canceled my Christmas party. And I'm thinking today. Well, OK, you're a 70 year old woman. 
I'm not. Um, but you you have to do what is best for you. I would. This is like everything else. I'd never tell another parent how to parent. I'd never tell an elderly person or a immunocompromised person how to handle this mentally, physically, emotionally. I just know what I can do for my household. And Carolyn Bennett shouldn't be recommending that everybody cancel their Christmas parties because, again, she's a 70 year old, you know, relatively sedentary woman. And 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 some of us aren't. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think it's been two years. We've all been thinking through this, talking it out. I think we're able to develop our own personal risk assessments now. Greg, in the next few days, I'm sure there's going to be the headline, Ontario crosses 1,000 new cases. That's coming. Mm -hmm. And we're going to hear a lot of people say, okay, well, more restrictions or whatnot. Hold on a second. 1,000 cases per day today is very different than what it would have been a year ago or or back in the spring during the height of the third wave. I mean, there's so much human activity. Everyone at the Phil Collins concert. I, I was at a banquet at the, the Royal York, a couple hundred people walking around, no masks and so forth. People are just living, they're doing stuff. The vast majority of people are vaccinated. A thousand cases today means something very different than it did when we were in lockdown. And you wonder, how is this even spreading? Human beings aren't even coming into contact with each other. So let's kind of keep things into perspective. Would you agree with this statement? So uh, an 83-year-old man, Gordon Lightfoot, plays three sold-out concerts at Massey Hall, an indoor environment. I don't know about the ventilation, but it's an older building. I know they renovated it. If you tested, if you tested with PCR tests, every single person that left that venue on Thursday, Friday, and Saturday night, you would have found some cases. So should we not have had the concert? I think think that's the line that a lot of people have to figure out. Do do I want to be on the side of, yeah, that's okay because they're fully vaccinated and asymptomatic, or no, we should shut that down. And if you shut that down, then then we got to have more conversations about sporting events. Then it's going to come back to schools. And again, that's the big that's the big stop sign for me is you're not touching schools. There's no circumstance where we're going back full time online virtual learning again. None. Zero. No, I completely agree with that. And I think one of the challenges is that the people who are more predisposed uh, to calling for measures, calling for lockdowns, perhaps at this point might be people who who really haven't dipped their toe in the water all that much. They haven't gone to the movie theater, the Phil Collins concert, the Gordon Lightfoot. Uh, the big banquet at at, uh, at the hotel conference room. So they don't realize that you can go to these things that maybe a year ago you called them super spreader events and, mm-hmm. and they're fine. 14 days later, you don't get the public health notification. Go get tested. There's hundreds of these things happening every day all across Ontario. And yes, we're getting into the cold season and the respiratory season. So I guess this virus is spreading a little bit among the vaccinated as well. But keeping it into perspective, it's okay. And, and you want these people to actually get out and about more because, you know, when things first opened, I mean, we had two years of pretty much being told, you know, oh, it's dangerous, watch out. And, and many people, even people who didn't support the restrictions have admitted that, you know, I felt this way. It's actually psychologically challenging to first get back into things. But once you're into them, it's fine. Yeah, once you're into this, fine. I'll tell you, Anthony, who's not afraid, and I think our listeners, we have a lot of them can resonate with this, blue-collar workers. Guess what? They they couldn't stay at home. They couldn't get paid and stay home. They work in grocery stores. They work our our fantastic nurses and doctors in healthcare, cops, bus drivers, um, you know, people that have to work at the airport. All of the terror, it's not them because you can't live terrified and go to your job five days a week, eight hours a day. It's impossible. You'll go bonkers. No, it's a good point. And originally, you know, we were calling the people in the grocery store the frontline heroes because they were out there back when we didn't even know what was going on. Thankfully, you look at the data spread in grocery stores, it's it's pretty much close to non-existent. Uh, but you didn't know initially and you wondered and, and they were out there and I'm sure that they've psychologically adjusted 
way, way before everybody else. His column in the Toronto Sun. You can read it there. Our weekly chat with Anthony Fury. Thank you very much, sir. Talk soon. Thank you, sir. Have a good one. So every parent sends their kid away to university. I mean, we still do this, COVID or otherwise. And um, I'm not there yet. I will be, what are we talking, two and a half years from now. I've got a kid midway through, almost midway through grade 10. And uh, going and being in residence, it's it's terrible, right? Because all you think about is the peril that you put yourself in when you were in university. The arguments you had, getting kicked out of a bar, doing this, doing that. And you're just, you're praying, right, that your kid is 85% smarter than you were and, uh, and, and avoids bad scenarios. And this awful story uh, from UNLV um, that I picked up on uh, because our next guest uh, tweeted about it. Um, and we'll get into the nuts and bolts of the story, but we want to welcome on Grant LaFleche, who's an investigative journalist uh, for The Star, does some great work in the St. Catherine Standard as well. Grant, it's great to have you on the show. Thanks for making the time. You, your work during COVID has been uh, amazing as well, so I'm, I'm a real fan of reading your stuff. Oh, thanks. Uh, thanks for having me on the show. Uh, yeah, absolutely. You you really wanted to amplify um, this story. It's uh, it's it's pretty terrible. Uh, a UNLV student passed away. They did a charity boxing match with their fraternity. And of all the events to utilize to raise money, um, I'd never heard of this. I know I know colleges do silly things. I know, again, as I said, we we place ourselves in some physical peril sometimes. But um, this is a tragedy. And, and according to, as you note, this is not the only type of event of its kind with, with this inherent risk. Uh, that's correct. Um, in this particular case, this young man uh, went to. They had a, it was off campus. Um, it was a, I guess, a fundraiser for a local boxing club to have kids programs. Uh, he competed on the evening, uh, collapsed a couple of days later. I, as I recall, um, the total cause of death has not yet been determined, um, but it does appear to have been a result of some kind of internal bleeding from the boxing event that he did. Uh, and then he he died four days after the event. You mentioned you write um, these shows should end. I've been involved in a few. What's been your uh, involvement? Uh, well, I was an amateur club fighter for a couple of decades. I mean, look, nothing special. Nobody was ever going to put me in the ring with. Floyd that's Mayweather. not what. That's not what I hear. We've got a couple coaches on the line that uh, are want to dispute that. <laughs> they they think you were the next Sean O'Sullivan. But okay, if you want to have you yeah. have it your way, then fine. To, to, to quote from Rocky Balboa, uh, I was just a ham and egg, you know. Um, and toward the end of that kind of, that kind of my life as a you know, uh, competitive club fighter, I was involved in and actually co-founded uh, a charity boxing show in in the Niagara area. And I understand the impulse. I love boxing. There's a visceralness to it that a lot of people want to get involved in. It's on their bucket list of something to do. But, um, as you probably know, Greg, unlike a, say, 5K run walk, you know, or something, or a 10K run for a charity event, when you do that and you get tired, you can stop and there's no damage to you. you, In boxing, you're getting hit in the head by another person all the time, and it's an inherently dangerous um, sport to participate in. And my experience was... Every the participants were all eager, but their training was often substandard. They were almost all novices with no experience in the ring. They were mostly physically unprepared for what was going to happen on fight night. And 
Well, fortunately, nobody died, and there were no serious, um, you know, lasting injuries. There were mismatches, people who got hurt because they were unable to compete safely. Mm. Uh, and when you sort of think about it in retrospect, you take a little bit of distance from it, and I've been away from it since 2016, you think there's got to be a better way to save money or, or raise money for a cause that doesn't expose people to a kind of risk that they're not really prepared to uh, mitigate because they don't have the skills to do it. Grant LaFleche joining us on Toronto today, uh, a UNLV student passing away, uh, participating in his frat's charity boxing match. Um, who uh, Nathan Tyler Valencia is the kid's name, uh, who was 20 years old. Uh, what an awful story. Um, w- headgear. Um, do we know if proper headgear was being utilized? Because that's that's an that's a risk upon itself is is to get in the ring without proper headgear on for sparring. Well, so here's the thing. Yeah, I mean, headgear is not this. It's not particularly useful in terms of a safety measure. And there's a reason why uh, Olympic boxers and, and top top level amateur boxers now do not wear the headgear because. Mm-hmm. Uh, two reasons. One, it just protects you really from cuts. It doesn't protect your brain. It doesn't protect you from knockouts. As you sweat, that headgear gets denser and heavier. And so you've now got more weight on your skull. And it's like having an extra weight on your head. So there's more of that mass torquing on your neck if you do take a big blow that twists your head. So headgear is useful to protect you from cuts, but it's not going to protect you from a knockout and it's not going to protect you from brain damage. Um, so I don't know. I don't know if he was wearing headgear while he was sparring. He should have been. But it almost doesn't matter because yeah. a, a knockout blow is a knockout blow. And if you take a bad shot you're, and you're unprepared for it or you can't protect yourself for it or it's just a bad blow, because let's face it, Greg, even the world's top fighters, you know, the men and women who are better at that than you are at anything we've ever done, they still can get seriously hurt and killed in the ring. Um, so people want to talk about things like headgear. But really, you're talking about risk mitigation and your risk mitigation, because boxing is not safe. It's never been safe. It's about risk mitigation, and that comes from your skill set. And that skill set takes a long time to develop, months and months for a novice, training three, four days, five days a week, not once or twice a week over a 12-week span. Then they slap a headgear and some trunks on you and throw you in the ring and say you're ready to fight. Well, you're not. You're just not. You're not. No. And and uh, I I don't I don't have your uh, quote unquote pedigree, but I did it for yeah. two years in sixth grade and seventh grade, and I loved it. And I only got in the ring in Sparta. It was the the workouts and just being in the gym, kind of as you yeah. note, Rocky esque was cool. But then I got braces, and as you can imagine, uh, you're you, you ba- <laughs> once the orthodontics go on, uh, your <laughs> your parents, uh, you know, middle class people are like, uh, no, this is not happening anymore. Find some, go play tennis. If you get hit with a tennis ball in the mouth, we think you can handle that a bit better than getting socked in the mouth. I I just I wonder if if this like I don't think a ca- a campus or a frat would have a UFC night. I wonder if they viewed boxing as somehow you know, somehow safer. And as you note, with repeated blows to the head, why would it be then getting in an octagon and having some kind of event there? It wouldn't be if you're not trained. No. And, you know, there is, there has always been a thing where people look at professional boxers or amateur boxers and think, you know what, I can do that. Cause look how simple it is. You just stand there and throw punches and they have, they, they really don't understand that there's a craft and a skill set to it that you need. Um, in terms of the physical danger, I mean, I don't know that UFC is any more or less safe than professional boxing. It's another combat sport 
with a different skill set, right? It's a different combat sport. They're, they're sort of related a little bit, but you're no safer because you're still taking blows to the head. You're still taking blows to the body. You have to be in great shape. You have to be able to have a skill set to sort of protect yourself. Mm-hmm. And even all that might not protect you at the end of the day. So as you say, this guy is 20 years old. He's, you know, died apparently as a result of injuries sustained during this event. And then you're left saying, well, for what? Like, for what For what does this guy get this badly hurt and die? And, and if you, you know, if you want to raise money, or you want to donate to, you know, the MS Society, or you want to donate to your local food bank, or you want to donate to a kid's program at a boxing club, just donate to it. Yeah. You, you don't have to put yourself at risk if you are not willing to spend, you know, the four or five, six months of really intense training to be able to compete as a novice. And I, I just think the more these kind of so-called white-collar boxing shows go on, the, the, the greater the inevitability that this is going to happen again. It's a weird one too, right? Because I I think, well, social media has changed how we watch sporting events and there's so much talk about concussions now in the major team sports and and it gets debated all the time. If if two soccer players' heads collide or it it happens, and I remember um, in a World Series game, Doug Fister's pitching for the Detroit Tigers. He had a comebacker bounce off his cap and and people were like, get him out of the game. He's got to get him out. But the guy just kind of shook it off and retired the next 15 batters, shrugged his shoulders and kept going. But we're all Twitter, we're all Twitter, you know, doctors and brain specialists. And yet with boxing, we just sit there and go, well, they know what they're signing up for. I'm going to watch Canelo and Triple G. They know what they signed up for. And we and yet we're a little panicky about all the other sports with head injuries. Not that we shouldn't be. Well, I mean, boxing, you're right. And boxing is, you know, professionally is extraordinarily strange. You know, there's no boxers union, right? There's no equivalent of the unions in the NFL or the NHL or the NBA that look after the interests of the players. Uh, there's no retirement funds. Most fighters, most fighters who aren't making Floyd Mayweather money or, or you know, uh, mm-hmm. Kill Alvarez money, they're never going to make enough money to retire on. And yet their bodies take this tremendous punishment over the course of their careers. Uh, and they're left, you know, really with nothing. And they're left with a grab bag of, of injuries and, and possibly uh, uh, brain issues at the end of their careers. Uh, it's, you know, I mean, go, I love boxing. You know, it, it, it's been a big part of my life for a long time. But when you start to look at it through this lens and you see that this young man lost his life, you just think, I don't even know why this is even being entertained as a way to, as a way to raise money anymore. No, no way. No, not as, as any kind of a, any kind of an exhibition. Uh, Grant, it's great pleasure having you on. I hope we get to do this again. Thanks so much for getting up early for us. No worries. Have a good morning. Okay, Grant LaFleche. That was great uh, from the uh, Toronto Star. We'll put that in our podcast if you missed some of it. That's a really, again, a tragic story, but what can we end up learning from it? Sheba Siddiqui joins me now. This, uh, I don't have it in front of me. Do you have it in front of me? I lost it temporarily. So you lay out this story here. I think it's fascinating. We got a couple minutes to do it. Okay, this is a term called sexual racism. Okay, so there's a couple that wrote Which we were going to call this show, and we decided let's just call it Toronto Today. (laughs) Well, there's a woman who wrote in uh, to an advice columnist, and she asked, she said her and her husband are in an open relationship. No, her boyfriend are in an open relationship. Okay. And she's, this is something new in their relationship. It's really working well. They feel more physically and spiritually connected than ever since they've opened up their relationship and they have other sexual partners. Uh, however, she's noticed that every single, and I'm guessing it doesn't say, but I'm, I'm assuming they're both black and mm-hmm. she's noticed that every partner he has is a white woman. 
So now she's oh, thinking no. he's sexually racist because he only hooks up with white women outside of their marriage or their relationship. So do you is this a thing? Do you think sexual? Can you be sexually? I racist? don't. I don't feel that way. But what's the? But people like what they like, right? They're attracted to who and what they're attracted to. Is that safe to say? Oh, 100%. I agree with you. You can't control what you're attracted to. Now, I do think people have a certain type. I mean, if you look at, let's say, your past relationships, I think there is a certain type that you could be attracted to, but you could, you know, sort of go, go. Sometimes you, hey, I'm, I've surprised myself recently. I, I'm crushing really <laughs> oh, hard. Oh, I wish we had more time for this. <laughs> somebody that I never thought I would crush on. I'm going to give you one name. Tell me if you know who this okay. is. John Dutton. Uh, on oh. on Yellowstone? Yes, Kevin Costner on Yellowstone. His little cowboy hat, his tight jeans, his character, John Dutton. Not his son uh, uh, with the no. mullet? And this is where I know I'm okay. in a different age category. I thought it would be Casey Dutton, his son, who's like the little you know pretty boy in the show. No, it's John. I That's interesting. Crushing. And I, I just started Yellowstone. I can't stop watching it's it. It's great. It's amazing. So um, I'm not attracted at all to Beth. I'm not attracted to loud, uh, vocal alcoholic, uh, <laughs> potty mouth, blonde women. See, I can't get in trouble for that, can I? I didn't say anything wrong there. But but you know that somebody could say, give me a, um, a color or a race that I'm not attracted to. And everybody could do it. And we got to, right? Everybody could do that. Couldn't they? Yeah, I think they could. so. So but, is, but that, is, that a, is that a prejudice? No. Oh, I, hey, I don't think you're being racist if you're not attracted to a particular type of person. I agree. Now, but but some people also, do, which is nuts. Well, there are dating websites, right, where some people listed in their bio, not attracted to whatever, whatever, whatever. Like, you can't do that. Come not on. I'm not attracted to uh, Scandinavian people. I'm, I'm heavily attracted to Scandinavian people. I, but can <laughs> oh, you, is that a... <laughs> so random. <laughs> not the Danes. It's just the, Swede, the Swedes, the Finns, and the Norwegians. I have no right. interest in Danish people. I am, I'm right. heavily racist against Danish women. There's no I doubt about it. I think that there are right. <laughs> beautiful, stunning people in every race <laughs> no, yeah. and culture and country. I'm telling you, there are. Whether you're attracted to them or not is a different story. I think that's that's the smartest thing either of us could have said. And naturally, it came from you. Hey, thanks very much for listening to Toronto Today. Don't forget, live show tomorrow, first day of December, 530 to 9 on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. You can go to 640toronto.com or check out the Radio Player Canada app. You'll find lots of great stuff on there, including this show. Thanks so much for listening.